Well, hey, uh, there is only one way to eat pumpkin pie. I don't know if you know this. Uh, it's only if the pumpkin, fly fl- pumpkin pie flavor is secondary to the flavor of Cool Whip. <laughs> you may disagree with me, and that's fine, but you're wrong. It doesn't matter how good your recipe for pumpkin pie is. Uh, I will be finding the nearest tub of Cool Whip, whether that's in your house or at the grocery store, and I will be lathering my slice until it is absolutely no longer recognizable as a piece of pie. It's wonderful. But that brings me to the pumpkin pie fiasco of 2014. I'll explain. Samantha and I had just been married in the July of 2013, and she was already an amazing cook. Like, she could cook pretty much anything, and it was awesome. I gained 15 pounds, like, in the first six months of our marriage. It was amazing. And it was around Thanksgiving time, and she decided to bake a pumpkin pie. Well... I only like pumpkin pie if there's Cool Whip around, and I looked around, and unfortunately, there was not a single tub of Cool Whip, not even a thing of Ready Whip, which is inferior to Cool Whip, but I'll sacrifice if I have to eat pumpkin pie, right? No avail, nowhere to be found, and unfortunately, at this time in our lives, we were so poor, we probably couldn't even afford Cool Whip, so we d- I didn't go to the grocery store, and Samantha left for work one day, And I was home by myself. I was about to go to class, and she texted me and asked, have you tried the pumpkin pie? Being the generous and very good husband I was, I replied, yup, delicious, smiley face. I had not tried the pumpkin pie. My intention, this is terrible, my intention was to take a piece of the pie out so that it looked like I had eaten a piece of pie before she got home. And being the very mature 21-year-old that I was, I got busy and forgot to do that. So she arrived home. I welcomed her with open arms. I was so glad to see her, as I always am. And then she looked in the fridge. And now you know why it's called the pumpkin pie incident of 2014. (laughs) I did not eat a piece of pumpkin pie. I don't like pumpkin pie by itself. But I told her I did, and I told her it was amazing. And the consequences were passive-aggressively felt. In today's passage, we come upon the aftermath of the golden calf incident of a super long time ago, where the Israelites were instructed to follow Yahweh and Yahweh alone. And in a moment of unfaithful panic, they chose to build a God for themselves and worship it. Today, we get to look at God's response to that incident. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Exodus. Uh, We'll be in chapters uh, 33 and 34 today. We're going to read all of 33 and there's one verse of 34 a little later on. Here's what it says, starting in verse 1. If you're not there, keep turning. You're good. It says this, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham. Isaac and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. 
Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people should ri- would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to a friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. We're looking at three ways that God's presence reveals things in our lives and in also this story. The first way we're going to be looking at that is how God's presence reveals our sin. This passage shows us that Israel is still dealing with the consequences of their disobedience toward God. While God is going to get them to the promised land, he personally cannot lead them because he is holy and Israel is so deep in sin. Instead, he sends an angel to go before them instead of him going before them. God's holiness is so great that if he goes with them, his presence will absolutely destroy them. And this news causes Israel to mourn the loss of their God. Think about it real quick. The God that brought them out of slavery the God that did many things that they had never seen done before, that they didn't think possible, were done right before their eyes. God used Moses to show those things to them. God showed himself multiple times, just from Exodus, the Exodus to here, and that's what they knew. Their God had done amazing things for them, and because they messed up now, they no longer have that God leading them. Think of the mourning that would have taken place. Think of what they just tried to do because they thought they had lost God in the first place and that was create another God for themselves and now they they have no God. They're a godless people and now they have to wander. God sure sends an angel but that's not going to help them conquer the promised land. He's going to get them there but now they have to do it in their own power. In fact, they have to do it with more faith than previously. They haven't seen an angel do things. They've seen God do many, many things, many amazing things. But now they're going to have to do it through their own effort. Essentially, God has given them what they asked for. We want to do this our way, and God said, okay, have fun. Hope you have enough faith. I hope hope it works out for you because I can't go with you anymore. You're a stiff-necked people. You're going to do this to me again, and I'm done. I'm holy. In fact, I'm so holy that if I'm with you, you will be utterly destroyed. And this news causes mourning for Israel. We see that mourning through their taking off of their, what really is, is jewelry, right? Taking off their ornaments. They're taking off their ornaments and they're dressing in such a way that they look like a mourning people. If anyone have, would have passed by them, which hardly anyone did, if anyone would have passed by them in the wilderness, they would have seen a very brown-clothed, uh, looking down at the ground people because they were dismayed. They, they had no hope. All they had was... I know I'm going to go to a place and I know it's going to be hard and, and I don't 
have a God with me. The language is so strong there that a lot of scholars believe that they dress like this from here all the way into the promised land, including the wanderings, including this generation that will, that will eventually die because they won't have enough faith to get into the promised land, dressed like they were in mourning for the rest of their life. Imagine that scene. Imagine being that people. Imagine living in the consequence of that sin. Not only that, when they camp, Moses has to pitch the tent of meeting outside of the camp. This happens numerous times in the Old Testament, especially in the Pentateuch, but this is a sign of God cannot be among them. Really, it shows us that the only people who enter the tent are Moses and Joshua. Aaron, the high priest, can't. He built the idol, after all. When Moses goes to commune with God, all the Israel can do is stand at the doorway of their tent. It's like they're consigned to, to holy timeout. All they can do is look at a, a cloud from afar and worship that in hopes that that cloud will be among them again someday. All of this is happening because God's character, God's presence, God's holiness has revealed really who they are. He's revealed them to be stiff-necked people. He's revealed them to be people who choose sin every single time. In a moment of panic, they chose sin. In a moment of panic, they chose to complain. In a moment of panic later on, they choose to doubt. This isn't the, the last incident of Israel being disobedient to God. He knew who they were. But this was very much a very first incident where he showed who he was and they felt completely unworthy and completely disobedient. What about us? Well, we're much like Israel. We think we can make our own way, serve other gods. However, when the character of God is shown to us, our sin is very clearly perceived. It is perceived not in the way that my wife perceived my lying about the pumpkin pie. We can look back at that action and kind of laugh that just caused a small marital argument, really. God's character allows to see ourselves for what we are in our own character, to see ourselves as sinners. We see that God has shown us a plan for our life, shown us a design by which we should live, and by our nature we look at that plan and we think we can do better. We create our own gods and want to do things our own way. The unfortunate truth, just like Israel is dealing with it, is, is that we get to deal with our own consequences in the face of a holy God. However, while our judgment is sin, it is a sobering beginning to both Israel and our story. It isn't where our story ends. It isn't where Israel's story ends either. They're in mourning, but the mourning won't last too much longer. Read with me in verse 12. We're going to read on from there. Moses said to the Lord, See you say to me, Bring up this people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. 
Yet you have said, I, I know you by name, and, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For I have, you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take, my hand, take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. Second thing that God's presence reveals to us is his mercy. His mercy. We see here that Moses sees that God has a plan. And is trying to see what is next. He asks God what his promise meant if God was leaving Israel behind. After all, what did the Exodus prove if not that God is supreme and his people are his? Did he not say to Moses, I have heard the suffering of your people by the hand of the Egyptians? Did he not say that his people will inherit the promised land? He said all of those things. We've looked at them just in this past study of God's word. This passage can pose a theological problem if we're not careful. If we aren't aware of the rest of Scripture and how to interpret Scripture with Scripture, we look at this situation and it seems that God has to be reminded that he's made a promise. Almost like a forgetful father who promises ice cream to his son and then has to be reminded by that son been there. Is that God? Absolutely not. Certainly not. Some have read, the, read this passage as a possible do-over for God's plan. They say, oh, well, Moses, you know, this didn't really work out, but I'm going to start over with you, and we're going to make this awesome. That's not God's plan. In fact, God's plan involved him knowing that Israel would create an idol. He knew that because of Israel's sinfulness, because of their stiff-neckedness, <laughs> he would have to separate himself from Israel because of his own unchanging holiness. But here's the thing about God. He can be unchangeably holy and still not change his plan. His plan is unfolding through a narrative that our eyes only read through time. And time is not something that Yahweh is constrained and let's just think about the personal implications of if his plan could change. Think about that. If he had to be reminded of his plan or, or if his plan could change, where would we be as believers? Where would we be, be as the church? Like Israel, Moses uh, interceded for their behalf. We have a true 
and a better Moses named Jesus, who while on the cross looked at the wrath of God about to unfold upon everyone and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they've done. He sits now at the right hand of the Father and justifies sinners through his own work on the cross. Are Jesus and God in disagreement about who's saved? No, because they, being God, have one plan, and that plan is to show mercy to those who call upon the name of the Lord. God shows his mercy in a very unique way in this passage. It's a very difficult passage to read because even Paul will quote it later on in Romans 9, another difficult passage to read. But he says mercy, and it's not because of what Israel has done. It's not because they started mourning that God felt compassion immediately on them. And it wasn't because all of these things happened and God kind of was like, you know, I was kind of being a jerk. I changed my mind. No, it's because he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. His mercy doesn't come from other circumstances outside of him. His mercy comes from within him himself. It is his character to be merciful. And therefore, when he chooses to show mercy, he's just showing his character. Just like in this passage. Think of us. Do we deserve mercy? Are we just like Israel? Israel, just before this, Doubted God with water, doubted God with food, doubted God's messenger and Moses, complained over and over about their situation in Egypt to God, saying, why don't you answer this? Their relationship with God wasn't really on a great start to begin with, and it continues to be rocky, and yet God shows his mercy. If we look back on our own lives, our relationship with God started very rocky. We were completely opposed to him and our sin, completely separated from our sin. But him, in his mercy, chose to sacrifice his son on our behalf because he said so. This is a hard thing to grasp, but it is a very good thing to grasp because if we don't see that, we're going to think we control God in some way. We're going to think that history somehow affects him in some way, and that's not at all true. God is affected by nothing. That's what makes him God. That's what makes his mercy even sweeter. Ultimately, in this passage, we see that God's character is one of compassion and mercy toward his children. It's not a coerced compassion or a manipulated mercy, but one that comes from his own character. As he says, I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. What a beautiful and mysterious God that we serve, who because of his character can rightly judge sin and fully pardon a sinner. We can trust that his mercy is unchanging because he is unchanging. We are beloved of God because he has made it so. And we know this through his faithfulness. Turn over in a page if you need to. It's chapter 34. We're just going to read one verse. 34 is an excellent chapter. Uh, if you've never read it, I highly advise you to go back, read all of 33, and then read 34. That's how God uh, works within Moses' life and in Israel's life. But we're just going to read verse 10 because I feel it sums it up very, very well. It says this. And he said, behold, I am making a covenant 
Before all your people, I will do marvels such as not has been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. The third thing that God's presence reveals is his faithfulness. Think of where this passage started today. Israel is absolutely more than just in trouble. They're in mourning. They had a father that looked at them and says, I don't know what to do with you. Be in mourning until I can figure it out. Your dad ever do that to you? I would walk in, man. I don't know what to do with you. Sit there until I think about it. Not a good place to be. Not a good place to be. That's where Israel was. You sit there. Think about what you've done. I'll decide what to do with you in a second. So much so, they felt like that was so bad that they felt like they had to go into mourning where they only could see Moses go and talk with God and plead for their outcome. Hopefully, that's what he was doing in their minds. Now, read these words again. I'm making a new covenant. I will do marvels such as not been created, and all the people among you shall see the work of the Lord, and it's an awesome thing that I will do with you. The, these words seem like the long lost son has come home. These, these aren't words of judgment. These are words of, of compassion and salvation. The Israelites could look back and see the wonders that God had done and see even when they acted sinfully that God out of his character was merciful and now God promises to do more? Look, look he's, he's wanting to say, uh, you've seen what I've done. You've seen that I've literally split a sea in half for you. You've seen that I've destroyed the, the strongest nation on the planet for you, and now I'm going to do better and more amazing things for you and through you. What kind of God is this? one who's faithful to his promises. We don't have time to look through the entire Old Testament today, but if we did, we could turn page after page after page and see the outcome of that promise over and over despite the continued disobedience of Israel. Think of just a few moments. Right? This generation, this generation that built a golden calf gets to the promised land. What do they do? They doubt yet God still gives the promised land to the Israelite nation. He raises up a king, instructs that king, David, to act in a way that a king of God would act. What does David do? Over and over and over, he acts completely the opposite. And yet, he's promised that a king that will come from his line that will reign over all kings, reign over all nations. Look at the prophets and how the many times that they said, repent, 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 come back. And Israel still did not come back. And yet, all of the prophecies came true. None of these measure up to the ultimate fulfillment of the Old Testament. The person of Christ in this passage, the ultimate marvel such as not been created referred to is the salvation of the world through the Son of God. 
Israel could live knowing that their God would not just save them from slavery in Egypt, but also from the slavery of sin and death. The writer of Hebrews tells us that those that came before Christ were saved by their faith through the promise made to them. We can go back to the book of Hebrews and see the many, many people in the hall of faith who had faith and were saved because of it. Church, we have a better outcome. We're so blessed. We are saved through the promise fulfilled in Jesus. We can look back and see the promises that God made uh, in this passage as fulfilled in its foreshadowing of Jesus and his life and death and resurrection. Has it ever occurred to you that we live in such a time as this? Sometimes we read these and we think of them as history stories and we think of them as spiritual guidebook stories and so many other things. And there's nothing wrong with some of those things, but often we don't read them as this is the book of our people. We are God's people. And all the promises that God has made to his people are yes and amen in Jesus Christ, whom which you are saved by his blood. What an amazing time to live. What an amazing time to be. Because God's presence shows his faithfulness. When I consider those things, it makes the world seem very, very small. It makes the problems that I deal with minuscule. And it makes the faithfulness of my God seem infinitely bigger than I could possibly imagine. God's faithfulness helps me get through the day. God's faithfulness shows me that I am his beloved, that all the way back in Genesis 1-1, he knew that his son would die on the cross for my sins and your sins and the sins of the whole world. That makes me feel loved. And with a love that I can't describe, if we look back in all of history, this is an old book, guys. This is a very, very old book. And I look back at how God orchestrated every single thing so that I might have the opportunity to call upon the name of Jesus and be saved. We're a blessed people. Not because of who we are. But he's already revealed who we are. But because of who he is. Because of what he's done. Because he has promised things that he has fulfilled. I don't know if you've noticed, but ultimately we've looked through what it means to be saved. We've hardly talked about who you are. We've mainly talked about who God is. He reveals our sin. I wonder if that is you today. Maybe you don't know what sin is. Maybe your life hasn't been the best lately and it's because you're living in the consequences of your actions. I invite you to seek God. I invite you to seek his face and experience his mercy. There's no sin that he won't forgive. There's no place in life that he can't reach you. Look at the Israelites. Have you been hiding? Or are you in just outright rebellion against God's plan for your life? Against God himself? 
Come to a God who shows compassionate mercy. Maybe you've experienced what I've just talked about. You, you know that God has compassion and mercy. You know that he is there for you. But you're struggling to see God's faithfulness in your life. Something is going on in your life, and it's maybe the worst ever you've ever been through, a situation, just where you are. I invite you to look no further than Jesus. He is and was and has been faithful to you, to your family, to your church. Well, if your circumstances may be the worst they have ever been, his faithfulness hasn't wavered because he can't change. Don't wait to experience the mercy and love of Jesus. His faithfulness is true. It doesn't fail. His burden is light. It's easy. And it's much better to live knowing that you are loved by him than just remain in sin, remain in guilt. If that's you today, I invite you to do that this morning. Let me share just a personal story of my own. I grew up as a minister's kid uh, in the south, the deep south of Florida and Alabama and all over the place. Many of the things that I lived by uh, were just the rules. Uh, I was a pastor's kid, so I, I was under a magnifying glass. And that magnifying glass sometimes was very intense, uh, down to what I wore on Sunday morning, uh, down to what friends I hung out with, down to whatever it may be. Uh, there was somebody in the church that was picking at my life, because apparently his life was perfect. That grew in me this want to please others, this want to make sure that I was doing all of the right things. And, and while I was doing that, I was kind of revealed, it was revealed to me that I really wasn't walking in the presence of God. I was walking in the presence of my own efforts, just like Israel was at the beginning of this passage. See, what Israel should have done was when Moses was up on the mountain with God, and getting the law and, and having a, a talk with the Lord, they should have been basking in his presence. They should have been reflecting on his faithfulness, on his mercy, on their salvation from the Egyptians, on what God would do next, just like they did in Exodus 15. Instead, they turned to their own devices, no matter how good, how innocent they seemed at the time rather than just sitting there and knowing that they were the children of God, knowing what that meant, knowing that they were loved, knowing that that meant that wherever they were going from there was going to be better because God was there. My life doesn't reflect that until very recently. A pastor sat me down and said, who would you be without being a minister? Who would you be if it wasn't for all of the accolades and all of the things that you've done to truly impress people? Would you still say, I'm loved by God? Would you still say, I experience his presence and that is enough? That was a challenging word to me. I'm hoping it's a challenging word to you. Many of us live our lives by many different 
rubrics, many different scales, but do you live your life knowing that you are loved by God? Do you live your life knowing who he is? And that because of who he is, you are loved. You are shown mercy. You are gifted. You are so many other things that God has given you, not yourself, God. I'm hoping that that's a note that I can end on that's hopeful. It's one we can just sit and think and rest in. Let's pray.